Welcome back to the Andy Social Podcast. This is episode 200. Two zero zero. What a milestone! I finally made it. It's uh, it's been months between episodes. Um, I really sat on this one, uh, but we're back. Uh, it's a brand new year. Um, it's February now, twenty twenty. Um, I don't think it's too late to say Happy New Year. Um, it's been a while since we've spoken, so Happy New Year to you guys. Um, but uh, we're back, ready to go. I've got heaps of episodes recorded already in the bag. I'm looking forward to sharing them all with you. Um, now I'm recording these episodes. Uh, well, this intro a little bit out of whack um, compared to everything else that's uh, ready to go. Um, but by the time you listen to this, there should be a pre-episode uh, for you guys to listen to a little bit of a welcome back uh, episode where I ramble on for a little while about what's been happening over the past few months. So a bit of a catch up. Um, talk about some of the things I've been involved with, what I've been doing, because I haven't been completely lazy. I've been a little bit, um, but um, I've been enjoying the Sydney lifestyle, getting involved in a whole bunch of different things. So I'll talk about all that and I'll talk about the direction of Andy Social and where that's going this year, because there's a bit of a change in format, um, some extra stuff um, happening. And um, as you can see, um, no doubt by now, because you've clicked on your podcast player to play this, there's brand new artwork for the uh, for the podcast bit of a fresh look, um, thanks to my good friend Tristan Tate. You can go and check out his artwork over at tristantate.net, and he also did the artwork for my other podcast series, Nod to the Old School. So um, lots of stuff hap- happening. It's really, really exciting. And uh, the point for that pre-episode and uh, I guess where the format's going in the future in the weeks and months ahead to come um, is to reduce the amount of waffling in these main episodes every week, which um, I'm really trying to rein it in here. So we'll see how we go. So speaking of which, we're going to dive right into this week's episode. So episode 200 is with Andrew Farris. Now, if you don't recognize the name, um, if you're from Australia, I'd be quite surprised, but I'll just pretend that you don't know. Andrew Farris is uh, the main songwriter, one of the main songwriters and uh, the multi-instrumentalist for the iconic Australian rock band In Excess. Uh, he is a, um, a prolific songwriter, um, one of the most uh, well-known songwriters uh, globally, but especially in Australia. And um, just recently he got a uh, member of the Order of Australia for his significant service to the performing arts. Uh, and that was uh, presented to him at the uh, 2020 Australia Day Honours um, straight A awards, etc. So, um, some really cool stuff. I'm going to put some stuff in the show notes about that in particular, but the main reason why I caught up with Andrew is that he, um, after so many years and decades in the industry and, um, accumulating all these accolades and these achievements, I mean, amazing career that Andrew's had, um, he's releasing his first ever solo album, his debut album, and, uh, that'll be out on the 15th of May. And you can go to andrewfarris.com where you can pre-order the album. Um, so have a listen to this chat and uh, see if you're inclined to go and check out uh, some of his music. Now, he has a brand new single that just came out in January called Good Mama Bad. Um, that's on YouTube. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, etc., etc. And uh, the first single that came out, I think, towards the end of uh, 2019, I believe, um, is called Come Midnight as well. Now... You guys may have seen the photos. Um, you might be familiar, familiar with Andrew, but you may not be familiar with what he's doing at the moment. Now, for guys that know me, guys and gals, um, I am firmly uh, fixed in the hard rock and metal world. So when I got uh, some of the music to listen to, uh, the, the two singles, um, to be honest, when I started, I thought, oh, this is really going to stretch me. I don't know if this is really going to resonate with me and, and something that I'll enjoy, but um, I shouldn't be surprised given that this guy is one of the best songwriters in the world. Um, 
but the songs are really good and really, really catchy. And the, the, the choruses in particular just get stuck in your head. So I was really, really surprised. And it just got me more and more excited to meet up with Andrew and have a chat to him, uh, not only about all the NXS days and, and what he's been up to um, over the years, but uh, the new album and the singles and the inspiration behind it, um, the story behind it. And uh, we go off on a whole range of different tangents and different uh, different roads in this, in this chat. And it's just fantastic to hear him talk about a lot of this stuff. And it really makes me excited to go and check out the album when it does come out. So um, Andrew's on all the socials, so you can find him on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, if you go to andrewfarris.com, so that's uh, F-A-R-R-I-S-S, uh, andrewfarris.com, all the social media handles are there. The pre-order links for, um, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure like JB Hi-Fi and probably Amazon, I'm guessing. There's a few different retailers on there anyway, so you can put put in your pre-order now, um, but that'll be out on the 15th of May. Um, he mentions in this episode how nervous he is about this, uh, this release. So it's cool to hear that for a guy who's been around the traps for so many years to be uh, still nervous and also so humble and, and thankful that people are listening and enjoying his music um, is just super cool. And uh, I've got a like, I mean, this guy commands respect just given what he's done. But um, after speaking to him and having this time with him, it's just been um, my respect levels are just through the roof. It's just an incredible guy. So I'm going to stop gushing. Um, I was, this is a great chat. I met up with Andrew at the Shangri-La in Sydney. We sat down in a little corner um, at the hotel and uh, there's a little bit of foot traffic in be- uh, behind us, um, but nothing too, too distracting. And um, I got to hear some incredible stories, uh, in excess stuff, uh, you know, more recent uh, stories, um, living in the US and doing some stuff in the US, uh, Nashville stuff, um, living back here in Australia and just we went off on all these different tangents. It was just a fantastic chat. Perfect podcast material in my opinion. So andrewfarris.com. I'm going to get right into it. Please enjoy this great chat with the legendary Andrew Farris. I've got to admit, I've got to be brutally honest, before um, meeting you today and um, some of the guys uh, got in touch with me to have a chat with you and uh, shared uh, your second sing- single. Yeah. And I, I went to have a look and I thought, all right, country music. I thought, okay, this is outside my, my realm. This is, this is coming from a guy who's grown up with hard rock, heavy metal. And I thought, well, all right, I'll give it a whirl. And um, not, to, not to blow wind up your rear end, but um, it's really good. The second single is really good. first one's really good as well. The second one's really good. So congratulations. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, appreciate that. I really do. It, yeah. it, like, for me, I've, a big thing's always been hooks yeah. and catchy choruses yeah. and just, just memorable sort of earwig sort of moments, and um, it hits them all. And I think as soon as I sort of turned it off and went on to you know, keep going through my day, um, the fact that it's still sitting in there resonating, I think, well... Yeah, it, sorry about that. It, it works. Okay. It, it, you, yeah. You've done your job, so well done. Yeah, no, thanks, <laughs> thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. And when I also read, you know, um, about your own uh, bass playing, you know, and, and, and the music genre you prefer, I, I really, really appreciate that too. Um, yeah, you know, look, I, look, I like, like, first of all, I really appreciate that. And secondly, I've been pretty nervous about all this because... You know, there's not that many uh, artists or musicians or writers or whatever. Oh, actually, not so much writers, but but musicians, and they get well known in their music genre. And we're all like uh, like as if we're all little blocks of Lego. And we're all different colours, and they like to stick us over in little areas. And they say, 
oh no 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 mate you know you're in that area over mm. there and you can't go over there you know um, but I think as a songwriter um, that's where the jigsaw puzzle started for me where I realised that uh, look you know writing a song especially they say in the country music genre it all begins with a song it's one of the expressions they use you know and I'm very aware of that mm. from my background with what I've done yeah. is it you know I realised earlier in, in on my career uh, before well before there was um, an in excess or a Farris Brothers or whatever I re- recognised really quickly that someone was going to need to write music or write songs mm. in order for us to have anything besides you know covers which is not bad there's lots of songs that I love covering actually yeah. and have done over the years but to do something original I realised I'd really have to think quick about how to and work quickly to put together as I used to call it the soundtrack to take on stage soundtrack for people's lives well it turned into that but it was it had much more humble beginnings where honestly it was more I began to realise that um, you know to have a recording career um, as a creative band playing your own music you have to keep doing it you know and to keep doing it that means you have to keep doing it Uh, and so you know for me songwriting which is where kind of led to my journey with how I ended up making my own country music genre well, I call it country and western actually mm. my, my album and I did that as well for two reasons firstly because well, I, li- I like the country music genre I like the way that they use old old school instruments that come from a different era mm. before electricity yep. you know the, uh, things like pianos and uh, you know whatever they were uh, uh, piano accordions um, uh, violins of course came fiddles in the country music balance and uh, you know pedal steels or slide guitars and dobros and all these sorts of instruments some um, banjos which crossed between a drum and a guitar all these sorts of instruments then it began to occur to me as it went along I thought I've always loved the instruments and I've always loved the genre but you know what happens if I start actually writing with those instruments in mind but take my experiences as a songwriter into it and don't think of it so much as you know, necessarily look I'm you know, writing a country album but more like instead of using technology you know which I've, I've been using you know for decades where it could be loops samplers drum machines synthesizers whatever it was I was using you know over the years and that changed too you know what was modern 30 years ago is not modern anymore and, um, and that's when I realised that these old instruments are still around, probably will be, mm-hmm. for a long, long time. And I thought, well, why not just, you know, kind of mature a little bit and start using those older school instruments, but use the same, you know, uh, little bit of knowledge I've learnt over the years of the songwriting, and then go down this road and see what happens. But there's a bit more to it as well, where I don't want to be like an elephant in a poppy field wandering around in someone else's music genre. It's not the idea. The idea for me was born at first, again, about songwriting. And I started working, well, I've always written as a songwriter by myself, but started working with people outside my comfort zone. That's actually started as far back as almost 20 years ago with Tanya Kernigan. Mm. She's one of the Kernigan uh, clan there. And uh, Tanya asked me to produce an album for her um, called Big Sky Country. And um, I worked with her young sister, Fiona Kernigan, who's an incredibly talented writer. They both are, Tanya and Fiona. 
Um, and of course, I got the blessing from Lee, which was nice because he's sort of family is one of those sort of royalty families in Australia mm. that have been around <laughs> forever and they always will be. Um, but even their mum and dad were really sweet to me, and um, and which I really appreciated. And uh, and then I met a lot of other people who I'm still mates with today that had worked on that record. And but I didn't automatically leap into the country music genre. I was actually working on a variety of projects back then, including um, with Yota Yendi, which I really also really enjoyed, which is not country music, but it was just a cultural experience I really want to have. And a very good one for me, actually, as an Australian, very interesting. Um, but with, um, with, with Tanya's record, I remember working as a producer there and, and a songwriter, but Laurie Minson, who, who and I had become really good mates, when I f I'd never met Laurie, and, and Tanya said, uh, have you ever met Laurie Minson? I thought, no, I never met Laurie. And he was on the other side of the, of the control booth, you know. Um, and I was in the studio, and I think, hey, so, uh, so, hey, Laurie, can you just do that again, please? But perhaps this time, try this, this. And he said, well, quite frankly, I think that was about as good as it gets, you know, to me, like, you know, I sort of, you know, bugger off, pal, sort of thing. <laughs> I immediately liked him, yeah. right? This is Laurie, right? Yeah. And I did. I, I thought, good for you, mate. Yeah. You know, like, um, he's not going to put up with any shit from me. And, and I immediately really liked the guy. Um, and, and we still get on. We were just playing together the other day in Tamworth. Um, you know, and I think I love that about Laurie. And his father, which not a lot of people know, John Minson, um, was one of the, well, of course, the people within the country music community know this in Australia, but a lot of other people don't. But John Minson was the one that designed the golden guitar. Right, OK. You know, and does all that sort of thing. And Laurie's dad, and they were very much, you know, and they're Tamworth-based people, mm. you know. Um, Tamworth's, a, you know, an amazing community. Um, you know, I've lived up there in the northwest, up, well, 100 kilometres north of Tamworth, really. Uh, I've had a farm, a cattle and grains when it rains, property up there. And um, But, you know, I'll go into to town. Uh, Marlena and I'll go into town to do our, our shopping or get cars repaired or whatever we've got to do. And um, But what I've noticed is, and Laurie and I talk a bit about it too, being sort of Tamworth regional locals, you know, a lot of people ride into Tamworth and ride out again, you know. <laughs> and I'd really like to see in Australia a scene where people not only ride into the town, but they stay there and they build a music community of some sort. Um, in that'll... Australia and Nashville. Yeah, you don't even have to use that second word, just Australian, yeah, Australian. town, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's don't my identity. point, mm. is that I love Nashville. I've got mm. mates in Nashville, and Nashville just happens to be, since we went there, Nashville happens to be five hours from Dayton in Ohio, which is where my wife's family are from. And one of the great things for me as a songwriter is, is that I've got family there in Dayton and Ohio, but I can drive five hours, which in Aussie terms is nothing, nothing really, yeah, nah. to Nashville, yeah. and then which is what I started to do. And in the old days, in excess would tour Nashville is just one of many US cities. So I knew Nashville because I'd played there before, but played sort of rock and rock music in that town, rock and funk or whatever we were doing in that town. So I knew a bit about it, always loved Nashville. But going back into Nashville as a songwriter, about seven or eight years ago, very fortunately, because of my career within Excess, I had a lot of doors open for me as a songwriter, people curious to work with me, and I was very lucky there. And I, and I started to work with uh, a lot of writers in town, and very well-known people too, with some seriously big runs on the board. And I started working with them, and at first I, 
I became a little uncomfortable, not about songwriting. I actually was, I just loved all that. But I sort of thought, what, why, am I, what, why am I doing this? What am I actually doing in town here? You know, am I trying to get cuts, as they call it? Am I, you know, uh, am I trying to, you know, uh, hustle to get my songs in on other people's records? And I, to be honest with you, I didn't really know. I was probably one of, one of all the above. You could tick all the above what I just said. But then something else happened where Marlena and I decided to go horse riding uh, down on the Mexican border uh, where the Chiricahua Mountains are. If you turn off Highway 10 and you head down Highway 80, you'll go through a lot of the old cowboy towns like uh, Tombstone and Bisbee and all those, where they make a lot of Hollywood films about all that stuff now. And that whole area was just... Uh, incredibly uh, steeped in history and that highway 80 a lot of it a lot of it doesn't have say modern you know fast food chains on it anywhere uh, you know um, a lot of it's still very much like it would have been in the old west you've got areas called apache pass and skeleton canyon and these sort of names um, towns like apache and and then uh, literally out just near apache the town little town of apache is where geronimo stranded and so myself and Marlena and a Wrangler cowboy guy called Craig Lawson, had, uh, he's passed away sadly, and his wife Tam, the four of us would ride around through those what they call national monument areas in the United States. And I'd ride around, we rode around, looking at all the um, stagecoach trails, which aren't, weren't anywhere near sealed roads or anything. And this is unusual for me in the United States, where I spent so much time in big cities, you know. <laughs> and um, but I, the thing the thing that I want to emphasize is that I didn't really understand at first what what was happening beyond the tourist kind of enjoyment of um, the opportunity there's the word to to experience something like that as a tourist so as as I was riding around um, you know I began to understand and get not a Hollywood feel but a a real understanding of what it must have been like. It was, it was hot, dusty, uh, you know, a pretty uh, almost desert-like part of it, and yet you'd start off on the ground, and then you could ride up, say, a mountain, you get to the top, and it's a blizzard, and it's snowing, mm. you know, all in one day. Right? One extreme to the other. Yeah, sure, yeah. which is why the cowboys wore dusters, not dry as the bones, mm. the Aussies gone, <laughs> but the dusters yep. to keep dust off them. And then they'd have the big wide-brimmed hats, usually with a five-inch brim like that with a curl on it. Uh, everything had a practical reason. Our boots, cowboy boots, were worn on the outside of their uh, uh, dungarees or, or canvas pants, whatever they wore. Not because it looked cool, it was because, because they were all riding horses in the years before electricity, and, and the idea was to stop chafing on the inside of your legs when you were riding horses all day, because, of course, there was no cars. Um, and all these sorts of things began to occur to me when I was riding around. We found abandoned silver mines, um, you know, and then I, we actually rode our horses, the four of us, up to Cochise's stronghold, and we stood at that point strategically from a military point of view where he could have stood there, Cochise, and watched the US cavalry mm. ride towards him. And because the dust they'd kick up across the way, uh, he knew exactly when they were coming and probably when they would arrive. And even if they came by so, uh, single file, and tried to come up the mountain towards his stronghold, he could pick them all off one by one as they came up. 
you know, by, by rocks. Now, this isn't a, a cowboy and Indian movie. This is just something I began to really get a different understanding for. And that whole area along there, you know, you've, you've still got illegals, um, uh, people coming in, uh, you know, f- f- from um, Mexico. And some of them were just scared. They want a better life. Mm. They want to come in. They've got backpacks with very little food. They have nothing, nothing uh, to, you know, and they're, and they're scared and they're walking around. There's some slightly more scary creatures like drug cartels that'll come in and, and do the same sort of thing um, in these areas. Um, but then it occurred to me the parallel with the Old West, you see. You'd have the cowboys riding around. You'd have, uh, just like the Border Patrol now, you'd have the... Uh, You'd have the sheriffs and the marshals riding around and trying to round up people because they're not particularly nice people. And I started thinking, as I looked around, it says wilderness area, I thought, nothing's really changed. Here we are, (laughs) all these years later, with all our mobile phones and everything else, and it's still kind of the same. Like, it doesn't have any... There's not a lot of modernisation. There's no big developments or skyscrapers or whatever. And uh, I had slightly... I don't know, I don't want to seem airy-fairy, but... There was one night where there was an ex-Border uh, Patrol uh, man uh, who'd been here, yeah, who's an ex-Border uh, Patrol guy, and we were in an old stone cabin, Marlene and I, and we're right at the base of one of the mountains I was talking about, and there was this wind sort of howling through this mountain. And um, I thought, you know, he and his wife were going to stay there the night, and this is right on the border. And I didn't, you know, I, I just thought, well, I said good night, and we'll get up in the morning. And, well, they said... We're going home now, man. Good night. Have a good night. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm right there on the border and a place called Skeleton Canyon. And, oh, lovely. You know, yeah. And, um, and he says, what's the matter, boy? And I said, oh, well, you know, uh, I heard there's a lot of legals and people running around here. He goes, oh, well, you don't worry about that. And he takes off his gun belt with a 45, you know, his oh. slugs and says, just take this, son. You'll, you'll be okay. You know, I said, Had you fired a gun before? At that stage? Oh, I have, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have, you know, I have a license yep. anyway. But yep. the, the point is, um, you know, I take firearms very seriously, actually. Mm. But, the, but the point is, is that, um, you know, <laughs> that I was lying there and I wasn't so much afraid. But then I began, when we were really alone in that area, and I could hear the wind sort of howling, I started thinking, not like Hollywood portrays it, but I had a really feeling, a lot of sadness, to be honest. I felt very sad in that area because it hit me, you know, how much, how tumultuous it must have all been with the cowboys riding around, um, you know, uh, the US cavalry, the Mexican people, the Apache Indians, um, all these people in, all in that area, all living and, you know, dying or whatever they're all happening to, all trying to find a way to get on. Um, my point with the story was, after we did all this, um, I went back to Nashville and then I realised and I got back into town and they're all, you know, I'd, I'd go to write with people and they'd say, well, you know, because just like it is in most modern radio formats around the world, well, let's write it, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's, you know, whether whatever it is, whether it's EDM, hip hop, uh, rock, um, you know, all these different sort of uh, country, you know, alt country, modern country, old, mm. country, whatever it is. And then I suddenly went, I know what I want to do now. Because I saw the parallels between Australian bush culture with, um, uh, you know, our bush rangers and the police chasing them around yep. and <laughs> people taking pity on them, which is very similar to the US at yep. some of that. They might have been 
they might have been outlaws, but some of them weren't all bad. Some of them were all bad. Some of them weren't. So people took pity on them. They fed them. They took them in. Same thing happened in Australia. Same thing with Australia is very similar. Where you know we had large <clears throat> amounts of uh, ground with uh, you know cattle and sheep and whatever running around, and people were very good on horses, which is why you know for example the British loved to take our young fellows in World War One and the cavalry because they knew exactly how to sit on a horse and mm -hmm. shoot guns accurately you know and, and all that sort of was very similar to the cowboy thing again the point is is that i thought well okay now i'm beginning to see this whole thing a bit differently and I, a couple of guys i got it they said what do you, you know we get in a room as you do you know you get in this situation you're writing with other people and they said what do you want to write about and i told them i said this is what it, they looked at me like i was from outer space and they said oh well, that's already happened that's old school you yeah, know? yeah stan jones hank, done that. hank marvin yeah. and bluegrass and you know and i said yeah well that's what i want to do i want to write about that kind of music because i see a lot of parallels between modern culture ironically and the years just before electricity came into play we are in transition again from the industrial era into electronic era. And it's sort of, it's, it's funny, but there's some parallels again at the turn. We, we keep forgetting we've turned another century, you know, as much as we just turned a decade, we're in 2020, we're in another century, but some things are coming along for the ride, you know, in our cultures. Um, and again, you had the meetings of uh, both countries and the US and, and Australia, meetings of European style cultures with indigenous indigenous cultures, you know, yeah. whether it was North American Indians or the Australian Aborigines, you know, you had that same, um, you know, incredibly powerful uh, conflict of different cultures, you know, all coming into play, which has formed our countries to both US and Australia in, in a strange way to be the way that we are today. And so I figured that those, that area is an area I thought, well, if I'm going to ever value add anything into the country music genre, is to try and tell stories and portray this the closest I can see between a combination of just wanting to tell stories, you know, hopefully write a couple of good songs and to have a bit of fun and to be a bit entertaining with it all, where I don't mind if it's, you know, if it's not what everybody else is doing right now. I don't really care about all that. The train's already left the station. When you chase a train, it's too late. It's already left the station. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah. you got to find the new one. Oh, you might as well start one. Start one. That's right. Mm. Did you find, I mean, this might be earlier in your career, but you, know, you, you carved out a reputation in, in excess and being pretty much the or one of the main songwriters in the band over, over the career. Um, but sort of moving past that era, did you... Did you have to go through that transition? You sort of touched on it, where sort of finding yourself outside of that identity, uh, being a songwriter and working with so many different people. Because over the years, I mean, you know, I, I go and have a, a look online and just just the polarising personalities that you've worked with over the years. Um, did you have, I don't know, like imposter syndrome or any any of those sort of worries Impo going in? Imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, even, that's funny. even yeah. even though you've even though, and to be be brutally honest I mean you know the accolades and the achievements that you had up until sort of you know all through the in excess career um, you probably didn't need to have any imposter syndrome feelings but um, mm. but go, going oh, no, out no, of that no, your identity was, is different no there's definitely surreal surreal experiences that I began to realize when I was a really big fan of, of certain acts like uh, when we were kids um, you know uh, 
well, my brothers and I, uh, which is pretty bizarre, my brothers and I, the first band we saw was the Beatles, mm. you know. Um, and that was strange in itself um, because the, seri- the s- series of, s- the sequence of events that led up to that actually happening for the three of us, pretty odd. We have Perth, Western Australia, probably, you know, I think it's the most isolated city in the world mm. geographically. You've got, An- of course, Antarctica below. And then uh, to the east, you've got Adelaide's the closest. What's that, 3,000 miles or yeah. something? And then, uh, you know, to, to the west, you've got, what is it, Africa? I think yeah, South right. Africa. Yeah. And then you've got, um, <laughs> hopefully I'm right about that. And then, uh, <laughs> then, and then you go north, uh, northeast a bit, you've got Darwin, but not much else. Um, and so little kids growing up in such remote geographical underpopulated area as Perth was, being through West Australia three times the size of Texas, um, which is big. Um, and then Dad had wanted to go back to see my grandparents, his parents, in London, having lived in Australia, uh, you know, in the, in, in, the, in the sort of late 40s. Um, he wanted to go back, so in 1964 he put my brother's eye on that ship and we went for three weeks on the, up, on the east side of the Middle East to aid the port of Aid, and I remember holding Dad's hand, walking through the streets, and was, everybody was dressed like Jesus. <laughs> and then we went through the Suez Canal, and I was always amazed how close the ship was to the side of the canal. It was amazed me. Um, but then when we finally got to uh, London, yeah, the three of us got to see the Beatles, and we sort of sat there, and 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 this was before I think they became really famous in America. So. Then I thought later on in my life, you know, what are the odds of that actually happening? Right? And pretty remote. Um, so there must have been a reason why that happened in the end and why the three of us then ended up in an excess and the Farris brothers and doing what we mm. were doing. I'm sure that had, must have had a profound effect on us at some point. But I think when you're talking about um, imposter feelings, I, I, I think I've, I felt all pretty confident about everything still we t- until we started touring overseas. Um, up to that point, we were, we were just proud to be Aussie rock pub band running around, you know, as, as we did in Australia and in that era, um, you know, playing pubs and doing whatever we were doing, and it all felt right, it all felt good. When we got to the US, I remember one of the first shows we did was a show called Rock and Roll Tonight, and there was Simple Minds, who was, I was a fan of, a Scottish band, um, really liked them, I still do, and they're good guys too. And Eric Clapton was playing on that show on Rock and Roll Tonight. And then uh, I remember being really nervous, but I, th- I think NXS played really well. And it was televised uh, out of Hollywood. And then um, Ray Manzarek comes backstage from the doors. And he's staying there and he says, where's your singer? And I knew who he was. And he said, oh, he's over there. And so he walked over and he, and he said, hey, man, I just got to say, I was sitting at home watching your band. And it freaked me out because when you came on, it was the first guy I've looked at that reminded me of Jim. Mm. And, I th- and I thought, but um, <laughs> you know. And then I began. That's when I began to get a little bit uncomfortable. As far as far as it's one thing when you kind of fantasise about you. I hope I meet that person one day. But when they're standing in front of you and talking to you, <laughs> and and they're treating you like one of them. It starts to get really bizarre. Mm. Um, like I was a huge Stones fan, and I, I remember, you know, um, a couple of times, two or three times, Mick Jagger would come on. He came and saw us at the Royal Albert Hall, and I think it was 1983 or four, no, 80, 84, I think it might have been. 
in when we played in, in London, we played that show. And um, he came backstage and I didn't want to talk to him because I had a bit of a fan moment. I couldn't go near him because that was Mick Jagger. You don't talk to Mick Jagger. He's Mick Jagger. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, and, but he was genuinely trying to get to know us. I think yep. he was a fan of In Excess. So, and then he, he came backstage again many years later and the same thing, around about 1986 or 85, when the Stones were very publicly sort of arguing with each other, or at least Keith and Mick were. And... Um, and I, I couldn't talk to him, but de- my dad, Dennis, was there because dad came from London um, <laughs> and so did Mick Jagger, obviously. Although Mick Jagger's mother was Australian. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. No. Anyway, so um, and, and Mick came back and, and again, all the guys, oh, great, Mick's here, wants to say hello. And I, I virtually went around and hid somewhere because I couldn't talk to him, you know, because I was a big fan. And um, you were, you know, just, were you just worried that you'd just be a... A stump, like dribbling mess in front of him, and just say something silly. Yeah, or, completely yeah. dorky and stupid. Yeah. That's something along those lines, or just I was a yeah, big fat dag or whatever, you know. Yeah. So I decided to to not talk to him. But then I, what made me laugh later on is I went out the back, and my dad was sitting next to him, you know, yeah. with my brothers, and because dad was from London, probably a similar area yeah. to me, he's going, yeah. So anyway, mate, um, you know, my dad's talking <laughs> to him like they're old pals yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And that's when when you talk about the imposter thing, I think. The more we went along as a group, and because we, you know, we worked in 52 countries, and we spent a lot of time running around in both the United States and Europe, in particular, but many other countries as well, is that what happened is you start, you do, you start to bump into people who you, you think you'd never meet in your wildest dreams, and then one of the most, well, a slow burn for me at first was. It's a respect thing where they start to treat you like one of them. Mm. And after a while, you're like, even though you, you stop feeling like an imposter, it still seems strange because what you also realise as it goes along is you're only as good as the last thing you did. So it doesn't matter, you know, the fame and the money and blah, blah, and, you know, all that stuff. You know, yeah, it matters, but it sort of doesn't either. Like, you're only, you're only as good as you can still play or whatever you, the last thing you did was, um, you know... And speaking of that, as songwriters, I realised too, Michael and I realised, I remember we'd already had hits overseas and things, but I, I remember in 1985 when, uh, when Chris, uh, our manager at the time, called me at home and said, oh, do you realise you've got a top five hit in the US with what you need? And I said, no, I, I didn't know, that's amazing. And he said, yeah, you should go out, you know, party, celebrate, whatever, and what are you doing? And I said, I'm sitting at home watching the footy. He said, oh, we should go out, you know. <laughs> party on and whatever and I said yeah right, thanks mate put the phone down and I remember walking around feeling really uncomfortable right and it wasn't so much an imposter thing but I remember wandering around and I felt really uncomfortable and I couldn't I couldn't work out what my feelings were and then it hit me and I thought you know even though we'd had hits overseas and on the charts and done all the rest of it then I realized I thought the higher you get when you're doing all this game right yeah the only place you can go down is down if you're not careful and then you can walk around saying don't you know who I was to people right (laughs) that's a scary thought isn't it oh not really you know you're lucky to you know as John Lennon said you're lucky if anyone likes you yeah that's true and he's very true um still true um and but my point is is that you know um I think you get to a point and you're like well where where is this going like, what is the point of all of this? You do at some point. It's a bit existentialist. You say, "Why am I doing this?" You know, um, 
is it money? Is it fame? Is it the music? What, what is it? You know. And then I think when Michael and I talked to each other, we both had exactly the same feeling, which I thought was really strange. I said, did you feel like I did that somehow it was really uncomfortable? And he said, yeah, I did. And then we realised, okay. And then we got together and we talked about the next album we were going to do, which became Kick. And that's one of the reasons I think Kick was such a successful album, is because Michael and I had no illusions when we went into writing for that particular album. You know, and the other guys, God bless them, in the band, you know, um, my brothers, uh, Tim and John and Kirk and Gary, you know, on, we were all on a bus in Germany. And um, Michael and I said to them, which, you know, some people reading this would be fairly cynical or listening to this, but it, this is actually the way it played out. Michael and I said, you know, Andrew and I have been talking and we think that if you guys could please give us the grace to write all the songs on the next album, we'll give you a monster album, okay? If you just let us do it, all right? So they did. And I, I, I think that shows how, what geniuses uh, Tim and John and Gary and Kirk are because they recognise that let's just let these two guys have a run at this and see what they can come up with. Mm. It's very, very, very clever of them to do that. And, you know, just from a, an individual point of view and your own ego, it's a hard thing to, to let go for most people. You know, everyone wants a, a piece of the pie or their legacy and putting their yep. name against something. So to, to, to see that and have the awareness to go, all right, let's take a step back and let these guys run well, with it and see what they can do, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing. It's, see what I mean? Yeah. That's why I'm acknowledging yeah. it. Yeah. Because as much as I like to say, yeah, it was all about Michael and me, no, it wasn't. Mm. It was about them having the foresight to understand that, that mm. that would have been really great for for for, the, for all of us. Mm. And, you know, um, there's, there's, I think there's an old saying, you can achieve anything in life as long as you don't mind who takes credit for it. But also you have to be able to, to, to you know, I suppose in, in a military sense, you have to know how to, um, how to best utilise the resources that you have. It's not about being in charge. It's not about, it's about actually knowing you know, how to, how to put together things so that they're really, you're maximising your strengths with things. Same with a company thing, I guess, or something like that, or whatever it is you're trying to do, or anything, really. Um, charities, or, you know, you have to know how to, to really, to zero in on how to maximise the effect of things. And I think that was a perfect example of, of people making very intelligent decisions based on what was going to be best for a whole group of people. Did you find that, that particular era... Uh, exciting in the sense that you know as you said before you, you got that phone call you're number five in the US and then sort of having this moment of going well what am I what am I here for what are the motivations now mm. and then going into that next album was was it more excitement and adrenaline sort of pumping or was there were you feeling a lot of that pressure because as you said before like when you get so high you can also yeah it's, it's a high it's a plummet further, yeah downwards. you plummet down so were you feeling the pressure of that or was it more sort of sitting in the other side where it's just now we've got a bit of an idea of what we want to do let's let's run run with it and yeah. there's excitement attached to it yeah i think can i just say that the way you articulated that i think you it's all of that all of that combined and you know and there's a lot of trepidation too there's a lot of we weren't sure like it wasn't that egotistical we weren't really sure exactly of what we were going to try and produce. We did know that we wanted to put some more funk and groove stuff um, because a lot of our um, journey in the early 80s, which you got, you know, you, you got to put yourself back in time. You know, you'd had 
towards the end of the 70s, you'd had the end of disco and, and, and blues was still around, but it was almost looked at, you know, as, as not, not it was over, but it was becoming more compartmentalised. Mm. It's okay, well, not even disco, but, you know, blues is okay. Well, blues is a genre like jazz or whatever, so, you know, you dabble in it or not or whatever, or, you know, but the pop and rock thing was very punk, you know, and all of the pub bands and that, a lot of them, played straight eights, you know, like did 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 you know. And and so for Michael and I were like, well why is everyone going da 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 you know, why don't we sort of make it a bit funky, you know? Not exactly like disco, but actually, you know, and listen to other people's records that were sort of more funk or soul or, you know, Sam bit of Sam and Dave or a bit more there were the grooves or more you know, early hip hop stuff that was more um you know, sort of just groovy um, in that sense. Um, and because we're working overseas a lot, we, we didn't feel anymore that we had to to behave ourselves in Australia and, and, and play pub rock that everyone expected all the, you know, all the bands to be. We thought well, we can be whatever we want to be. We don't have to be this or have to be that, you know. We can be whoever and whatever we want to be musically. And so that was where the Kick album was really born from, is that idea of let's experiment, let's try stuff, let's just do things that perhaps some other people aren't doing. And, you know, um, and I think we, we kind of managed to do that somehow. It's a kind of, it's very much, it's a confusing album not now, but back then. And I can remember, you know, we took it to the record company and they're like, what's this? And we said, this, this is, this is our album. <laughs> and they stared at us like, you know, we we're on drugs or something. And they said, what, we can't put this out. You know, this isn't con- you know, contemporary radio. This isn't anything we, that we're used to. They, they said, you know, we don't like it. You know, here's some money, go back and re-record it. This is going back to creating your own train. That's right. Instead of trying to chase the train. Oh, you've got to do it. Yeah. Really, honestly, seriously, do that. Always be, you know, I tell, I tell anyone that is, you know, I probably bore everyone shitless, but the, the fact of the matter is, is you're better off to do your own thing. Be who you are. Don't try to copy other people. Be exactly who you are, because we're not all the same. And whatever, if someone's done something that you admire... You know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of other artists and I, I love, you know, just like everybody else, I've covered songs that I think is absolutely brilliant um, as a songwriter or, or music feels or styles. But that doesn't mean I'm them. It just means I'm acknowledging how great that is. But to do something creative and original, be yourself and be as yourself as you possibly can. Um, you know, and I think a lot of younger Australians who are now doing well overseas understand that idea is that you don't really have to copy somebody else. You can take little snippets or bits and pieces of what stylization, so you make it on radio or whatever it is you're trying to do, but you don't have to, you know, bend over backwards to, 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 to fit in all the time. You just be yourself. There's probably less gatekeepers now as well. You know, years ago, you'd, you'd have to convince you know, a collection, a small collection of people to get past that first, uh, that first fence. But now with, uh, you know, with the internet and everything, I mean, it, mind you, it also creates a lot of noise as well, but it does make it a lot easier for people to be more creative individually, to put stuff out there and, and find, their, find their group of, of uh, people that enjoy their, what they do. Exactly. I mean, that's right. And, you know, I think now, I'll come into the now, 
I think in 2020, this is an incredibly exciting era because of the internet and, you know, digital platforms where younger people can get their music out and older people to people around the world. And how amazing is that? And then, you, you know, uh, people travel now too. You know, you jump on a jet and you get off the plane somewhere in some other country. A lot of, you know, one of the most popular places at the moment for a lot of younger people is to go to Nashville. Well, I think it's really incredible and amazing and, and fantastic that they can get off a plane with a suitcase and a guitar and wander in somewhere. Someone sees them play where they walk in an office and they sing and someone gives them a shot at it, whatever, and they end up on the charts and end up playing, you know, gigs around or whatever. I think that's incredible and it's really, really good. And I hope it stays that way, actually. Um, you know, I don't, no regrets. I mean, I think, as I say with a sense of humour, when we first went to the US, you know, and started running around in the early 80s, we'd go into radio stations and they'd say, you guys from Austria? <laughs> Close. <laughs> they didn't know where we were from. The only thing about Australia. And, you know, we're also living in an era too, which is also incredible, where you've got, you know, some awesome actors and actresses, you know, who I'm big fans of. And they, they must be pushing their, their Emmy Awards off, off the fireplace to fit the new one on, you mm. know. Um, you know, they're picking up all these awards and things. But I think, you know, the only one I could remember uh, that turned up in about 84, somewhere around 85, was uh, Paul Hogan, mm. you know. Yeah. And uh, we actually, Michael and I went out there uh, on the invitation of, uh, of Strop to go out there and write some music for that film. And we had a, a script of the film. And I remember reading the film and script and thinking, you know, oh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, that's not a knife and all that sort of business. But, you know, um, but at the same time, I, I think it was the self-effacing and Aussie laconic sense of humour that's important in Australian society to translate to people overseas that we, we, we can be funny about ourselves, that it's not all serious all the time. I think that's important as our culture, you know, that we do kind of take the piss out of ourselves or see ourselves not too seriously sometimes. You know, um, other times very seriously, but, you know... Um, yeah, and I, and I meant what I said and said what I meant that I'd like to see in the future. I'm sure it's going to happen somewhere, somehow, where I'd like to see, um, say, an ARIA award or a, a Golden Guitar award mean as much, or our film awards in Australia, mean as much to people overseas as it means to Australians mm -hmm. to go over and pick them up overseas. Absolutely. The reverse becomes true. They're global awards, global recognition, yeah, rather than just... but for people to come to Australia to get those awards. That's right, yeah. Not for Australians to live in dream of just getting those awards, not when I say just, but, you know, okay, you know, one of the things that I really admire about Americans um, is their ability to embrace other cultures where really, if they wanted to, they could put a big steel gate down and say, no, you can all go away, we're Americans. That's it. If yeah. they really wanted to, they could do that, but they don't. They embrace other cultures and they, and they, and they award other cultures and they share those, those awards with other cultures. And I think that's one of the things that makes the United States, especially when it comes to entertainment, a very special place. Well, that's, I mean, that's part of the reason or a big reason why they are 
for really like a better term, the leaders. world leaders. Yeah, yeah world yeah. leaders in, in music. You know? And right. I mean, the British have, have been that decades ago as well. I mean, they, they carved out uh, an identity as a, as a music hub in the sort mm. of 60s and 70s in particular. Yeah. But um, the US have sort of just, it's, it's another world, isn't it? Well, that's true. And also, I'm not talking about necessarily a political stance or beliefs, but I've often found it intriguing that uh, Ronald Reagan was a US president mm. when he was an actor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I struggle to imagine in the arts in Australia that one of our musicians or actors or actresses could become a prime minister, you know. But uh, I think Australia, in that sense, politically, is still growing up a bit. Um, I'd like to see Australia start to, you know, to, to formulate days where we're, we are all united as a country and simply say, you know, we, we, we love being Australians, uh, you know, some of us were born here, some of us weren't born here, uh, we're a multicultural society, I must be proud of that and, uh, you know, um, you know uh, the, the only thing that'll stop a country from being great is being divisive within a country. Mm. Yep. Yep. I think we're still, I think we're still trying to work ourselves out. Yeah. You know? that's what I I'm mean, saying. yeah. In the grand scheme of things, I mean, you yeah. know, we're we're several generations in, but um, you know, globally, we're 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 a child, we're an infant, you know, and we're still we're still trying to stand up and walk properly. And you can see <laughs> that right. you can see that every every year rolls around for particular events, and you watch the 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 division, as you said, and it's um, I think people just don't quite know what to do, and this we just have to hope that someone stands up and leads and helps bring people together. We'll get there eventually, but when? I mean, who knows? But well, I don't know. Well, to borrow John Cleese's line, they've probably sat on chairs before. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, but, but Australia has a lot of um, wonderful, amazing opportunities ahead of it if we're not just a lucky country, but a smart country as yep. we go forward. Mm. We have some incredible opportunities in front of us to make... Australia, and I don't mean in a military sense, but just be a very, very powerful country. And as much as I'd like to think, and okay, you can call this a little bit utopian or call me a dreamer, but Australia becomes a country where people aspire to because it's really good at championing the right things in the world that we should be doing. Inspire. Inspire. Lead, lead, as we said before. You know, it's, uh, you've got to be able to show show other people what the possibilities are you know get the most out of individuals and and even just embracing what our culture was or has been sort of in the last i don't know 40 odd years um of that sort of larrikin sort of laid back take the piss out of yourself but at the same time take yourself seriously in the sense of what you do and what you what you achieve but still be able to do it with a laugh and and um and bring people together that's right and you know i think uh but just to go back and talk about, be selfish for a minute, talk about myself. Yeah. So my country album, country and western album, uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, I thank you for where we first started, and I really appreciate you saying what you said about Good Mama Bad. Uh, it's the second single I've released uh, from my forthcoming album, uh, which comes out on May the 15th. And I've been pretty nervous about it, to be honest, Andy. I've kind of like, I've been somewhere between sort of really excited and really nervous because you just don't know, you know, you just never know whether anybody's going to like what you've done or whatever. This is your debut, this is a debut 
know. solo album. Like, yeah, putting your name. Like, I mean, when I first saw this, I thought, sure, you've done something else in the past. I mean, you've been around for a little while. Yeah. So, I mean, is it, it was it just never on the register, like, sort of thinking, well, I, thought, I thought that you had in the past to go, I'll put, some, put my name against something as a solo well, release? Okay. Well, ironically, I had. And one of the things I started about 20 years ago and um, was ironically a kind of ambient sort of album that had a lot of country instruments all over it yeah, right. right and you know i'd like to think you know hopefully if you know i can dream a bit here is that if what i'm doing is agreeable to people and they like my new music i might experiment a bit more within that genre and kind of take things you know uh with the same sort of old school instruments but start really experimenting with um how to uh, you know, work with with um, soundscapes and things that aren't so much electronic. They're more with old-fashioned instruments, but done in a style where you know, um, perhaps not some of it is not perhaps very pop. Yep. Some of it's just just gentle music. Uh, one of my favourite um, albums of, of all time is the Willie Nelson album Teatro. Right. Okay. I haven't. Well, oh, I, 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 may, I may have heard. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Nah, nah. Right. A lot of people don't know that album. Um, uh, I played. I told that to Ed Eckstein once, uh, whose father was a very famous jazz trumpet player, uh, and uh, he was handling the Motown catalogue in the US. And he goes, "Really." That's one of your favourite albums? And I said, yeah, Teatro, absolutely. Um, and uh, uh, I love that album because half the album sometimes is Willie just playing Trigger, you know, right, his okay. yeah. classical guitar. Yeah. There's no clever little pop song or whatever. It's just he's just noodling away on his guitar. And I, go, I, I dream when I listen to that album because I get lost... And I don't know where I am anymore. I just relax and I listen to the album because it's not trying so hard to be commercial in that sense. And that's more what I'm talking about mm. is that I really love the way that it meanders around and, and that, um, you know, uh, it's just really cleverly produced as well um, by Daniel Lenoir, produced that album um, in New Orleans, I think. And, um, yeah, I really, really like that album. But, you know, th those sorts of things to uh, you know, old Spanish guitars and, again, and all these older instruments, um, just because the instruments are older doesn't mean they don't have any... Uh, what's the word, you know? Like, a lot of the thing I began to notice with electronic music, um, which at first I used to really love, was the fact that with samplers and stuff... You can sample these different sounds, but then when you go to put them all out and you call it your music and you start, well, it's not like you have a drummer mm. that has a style of playing drums and he uses the same kit. He might tune it slightly differently or play it slightly differently each time. Or a bass guitar, you might have your bass rig, whatever that bass guitar is, with an amplifier or, what you know, uh, um, uh, guitars or whatever. But when you start sampling stuff, it starts to sound like, if you can imagine, uh, some of it starts to sound to me like, I don't know who I'm listening to anymore. In other words, it, it's like having a, a, a large piece of cardboard with all these different colours all over it, and you chopped it all up with scissors, and you threw it all up in the air, and it landed in the shoebox. But the actual individuality of the musician, uh, 
uh, like I went and saw a jazz band the other night, where the guys are just, you know, geniuses at what they do. They're most of them in their 70s. And I just watched and was in awe of, of watching someone who's playing, been playing for 50 years mm -hmm. the same instrument. And more what I'm saying is that I think there's been insanely clever things done with technology. Uh, but at the same time, what's come with that is two things, actually. One is some loss of identity, of the idea of being a musician. Um, now a lot of what you're, 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 you're applauded for uh, is because, you know, some of it's like karaoke. You get this singer that stands up in front of a curtain and uh, I can't see any musicians anywhere. Uh, and then, you know, they'll have judges standing in front of them, <laughs> which to me is even stranger. Um, you know, everyone's perfectly capable of judging for themselves. They don't need a judge to tell you whether you like it or not. Especially and, with music, because it's so right, subjective, right. isn't it? You're sure. Not, you're, not, you're not working on a formula. I mean, you can, but I mean, no. in the end, it's whether you like it or not. I, I think it'd be funny to have a show where, where, where the, um, the judges have to sit on stage and the musicians sit out in front of them and talk amongst each other whether they like the judges. <laughs> Fickle. I don't know if it get the same amount of ratings that the other way does, but well, I don't know about that. And the, and the other the other thing <laughs> I think would be great is to um, is to instead of you know I mean a, a great vocalist is a great vocalist, and my God, there's been some incredible vocalists that have come out of uh, a lot of the reality competition shows. Um, but I think you know what I'd like to see is a television show made where it's all about musicians of different ages and they come out and, and it's not about singers uh, and the musicians play and they perform their musicians in real, you know, their musical instruments in real time. And then um, the audience, uh, when I say the wider audience, not necessarily judges, but people get to vote on what they thought, that who, someone played something they thought was great, you know. Um, it doesn't even have to have a live audience really anyway. And, um, but the idea is that young kids see all this and they might want to aspire to then become a great musician, you know, um, you know, because you know it shouldn't be that polarized, you know. Uh, and, and I couldn't help but think how ironic it is that you had like a Glenn Miller orchestra, you know, or Benny Goodman, or these guys mm -hmm. in, in the 30s who would invite someone like Frank Sinatra or Bing Crosby to come and play with their bands because they were great musicians, you know. Um, you know, I, I think that recognition of, 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 of great musicians and people who really, really are exceptionally talented as a musician needs to be championed again by people. I think so, and especially as things become or have become more fabricated and, for, and you know, sort of cookie cutter um, in a sense, as far as, you know, you've got a formula and you run through it and it's very sort of, uh, you know, spit it out the machine and create something that's, uh, that's not terribly authentic in the sense that it's, it's uh, individually created. Um, people are gonna start rebelling against that and pushing away from it and looking for things that are more sort of raw and rough around the edges and a bit imperfect and, and a bit more genuine and, and from the heart and so then people go well where does that come from then it'll go to exactly what you said where people will pick up an instrument again and start to go I can do this myself and it doesn't have to be ultra clean ultra crisp no you know, uh, free of uh, you know, human imp imperfections. imperfections that's exactly right yeah, yeah. so I think it's like anything, things just sway in polarising directions and we'll eventually sort of level ourselves out 
but um, and I, I mean that's probably everything in life, really. But um, yeah, but, no, yeah. I, I think that's true. Um, but not just of music. You know, you can see it too, where you know, with all the the, the incredible advancements in in um, smartphone technology, where you you know a, a camera in your smartphone, uh, you know, is about the same grade as the quality of a phone. That, a high, high-end camera would have been 25, 30 years ago to buy. Yeah. You've got in your hand, you yeah. know. Either that or a banana. <laughs> but, um, but the, you know, but the point, the point of that is that what you're saying is really interesting too because I agree with you that the, I think the imperfections, uh, or, or even, let's, I might add something slightly to that, the human imperfections or the fact that you don't play like somebody else does and it isn't perfected by a machine is what makes you unique and gives you the personality that you deserve to have recognition for as a musician, as a writer, as a performer. You know, it is those imperfections that makes it who you are. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know that, that I, you know, I, I think a lot of advancements in technology, like I was saying before, with music, um, you know, are fantastic, and I think it's enabled people to be able to create music and have platforms to put it out. And I just hope, in the future, that it's more of a combination, combination of both, um, not just one or the other. And people aren't robots, you know. We, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I, I have some of my best friends and things I love about my my family and whatever are that they are just as flawed as I am you know um, I don't you know I mean I think uh, the robot thing is kind of weird idea of and I see it in music more and more where um, you know uh, I think you know there should almost be two levels of awards, one for IT awards in music and <laughs> yeah. one for people who still play. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there's, there is a skill set attached to the technology, so yeah, that, yeah. that can still be celebrated, but so maybe to separate it a little bit might be healthy. I, th- I, I think for younger people um, who now have grown up with an awesome array, arsenal of technology at their disposal, it's not like it was 25, 30 years ago where I think a lot of listening audiences hadn't realised by that stage that they were listening to electronic music but just done very cleverly and blended with organic music. Now the younger generation is very aware of the tools that are available to make a lot of that kind of music. And on the one hand, what I find intriguing, on the one hand I would have thought that it would have either been the death of old school instruments and, and, you know, old-fashioned instruments and old-fashioned live performance, but I see the reverse happening in a strange way. Now that a lot of the younger generation is becoming aware of the power of it, they're saying, well, you know, I want to be a bit more hippie-like with my music. I want to get out there and have some fun. And if I make a mistake in the third verse and I, I drop that note or whatever, so what? I'm having fun doing it, you know? Otherwise, you're just pushing a button. Oh, that's it. I, I think about, you know, some of, the, some of my favourite songs of all time and especially the ones that have been recorded sort of live raw in the studio or on stage and there's those those trademark bung notes or or you know the voice kind of goes off pitch but that's what stays in your head it's it's a characteristic of the song it becomes a a thumbprint of that song now and, and that's what makes it human it makes it like you identify with it you connect with it more you love it more because you can 
you, you just get them for what they are in that moment in time. It's that, that little time capsule. Yeah, and you know, there's so much modern music now that's coming out. I think that sounds a lot more has a lot more empathy for what you just yep. said. Like a lot of modern stuff that's coming out now. And I think that's one of the reasons for the rise and rise and rise of country music, and, and especially now there's extra radio formats popping mm. up everywhere. It's because the younger people want that organic thing, I think, a bit now. They're beginning to say, well, you know, I grew up with some of mum and dad's music and some of it's really cool. You know, I want it to sound like that. Well, the way it's going to sound like that is if you play it in real time and you sing it and play it live, it's going to sound like that right there, you know. Um, but I think uh, I will also add that, that I am a fan of certain technology-driven musics, including EDM, including hip-hop, um, uh, funk music I really love. Um, you know, I, I like some metal as well, like some uh, classical music. Uh, and jazz as well, <clears throat> and the fusions of these things are fascinating to me too. Mm. You know, um, yeah, like uh, uh, we did a concert years ago in Japan in, in, in uh, Kyoto. Uh, it was supposed to be a series of, I think, four or five concerts. Um, it was called The Great Musical Experience. So I think it was George Martin's idea, the Beatles producer. And the first one was in Kyoto. And they asked us to, I think it was about 1994, they asked in excess to perform there, and the other young bands at that stage were bon, uh, John Bon Jovi and in excess, and we were the young bands. And then uh, the older artists were Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Ry Cooter. Um, and George Martin was sort of producing and overseeing it, but also was a Japanese guitar player, like a shredder uh, called Hotai. He was an amazing mm-hmm. guitar player. Very sadly, killed himself. And um, but. Uh, there was also a full Chinese orchestra, a full Japanese orchestra, including the Koto drums, and a full Western orchestra, uh, which was conducted by Michael Kamen, who was an absolute legend, both in the film and classical world, and he sadly passed away as well. But the whole idea of this, uh, of this concert was everyone was gonna work together, you know, um, and, and in that sort of more 60s idea. Um, but the whole thing was, was, was in Kyoto, um, and, and it was an amazing series of concerts. I watched a lot of the other artists, and uh, it was before Ry Cooter had made Buena Vista Social Club, and so I got the opportunity to actually sort of talk to him for a few minutes, and, and what a genius that guy is. But, uh, the, but the amazing thing was too, but I remember, of course, Bob Dylan was such an, a, a legend in so many ways, and an insanely talented songwriter. And, um, but, Michael and I thought it'd be a good idea to go and get his autograph. So he, uh, he was standing at the end uh, in this beautiful old wooden temple. You've got to imagine this, right? Ancient wooden temple. And he had his black wayfarers on. And he's standing there. And in front of him, there would have been about 100 monks with uh, purple robes and bald heads and, and gold sashes and, and you know flip-flops on all lining up to get Bob's autograph and then Michael and I were sort of staying behind them and um, but it was such a I wish I had a photograph of that because it was so bizarre looking anyway (laughs) one of those surreal moments yeah Yeah. well I think got up to talk to him and we were trying to get an autograph as much as I think was partly an excuse because we wanted to talk to him (laughs) but uh, for, for, for our manager at the time Chris's daughter Jerry wanted to get an autograph for her in, in the uh, what they call a program for the concert and um, 
and so when he saw it was Michael and I, he took off his Ray-Bans and started being, you know, more relaxed and friendly with us when we started talking to him. And it struck me that he, he's, he looks like... When, you, when I see him perform or I see interviews or images of him, he's not the same guy that I met. The guy that I met is actually friendly. Mm. Nice guy, actually. That Bob. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I'm you know, a huge fan of his. I think he's amazing. Um, you know, uh, yeah, really amazing. It's one of those one of those moments where you meet a meet a hero and um, and pleasantly surprised as well. On top of whatever reputation they've carved out in the public in the public domain, you're able to validate it on a more personal level to go, wow, this person really is the real deal. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And on stage with them playing drums was Jim Keltner. Yeah, well, who's a massive legend. Yeah. And I, was, I saw Hamish Stewart playing drums, who's a mate of mine, just around the corner here in Darlinghurst the other night, playing with, with some jazz music. And he asked me, he said, oh, have you ever met Jim Keltner? I said, yeah, I did actually. I met him in, in Japan. You know, but that was really... I remember, I couldn't remember thinking who a bigger fan moment for me was meeting Jim or Bob, because um, just incredible players. But I think, I think when you said to me about that, you know, imposter feeling sometimes, I, think, yeah. I, th- I, think it's, I don't think it's so much that. I think you just have to, I think it gets to a point and the more relaxed you are around them, they're going to be relaxed around you. That's it. I think people can, can yeah. sense when somebody's on edge or, yeah. or or feels that they're sort of paling in comparison. It's hard to it's hard to talk on the same level as somebody who already is not even attempting to try and be on your level. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so health, it's, it's difficult. Health difficulties will definitely level people. Um, you know, my wife, Marlena, she's stage four metastatic breast cancer and she's six years on from that, but one of the uh, her closest friends just passed away two days ago mm. who she went through the same treatment with and that's really shaken her up and but you know that's sort of the human frailty of being human is certainly a big leveler um you know it doesn't matter who you are or how you know terrific you are or famous or whatever awards you've been accoladed with it means nothing if you're not healthy you know it certainly keeps you grounded yeah um i'm keeping you on the time but um Oh, it sounds like sounds like sounds like this year's already off off flying. I mean, we're only in the second month, and uh, sounds like there's been enough uh, enough going on so far. But um, congrats on the member of the order as well. Thank you. Um, and I think that sort of ties in nicely with what we're talking about around sort of that next generation of people getting out there and playing music, creating music. Mm. I mean, you're being celebrated as somebody that's 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 a songwriter, a prolific songwriter. I'll, I'll talk you up. Um, and hopefully that sort of is validating to other people out there that this is still being celebrated nationally, you know, as, yeah. as you know, you're on that list now with... with a, and I was, I was going through, I, like, I wonder if it was on this list. And I'm going through, I'm like, man, there's some iconic people over the years that have uh, been a part of it, and now you're, you're another yeah. one that's been added. Yeah, well, I'd like to thank you. I really appreciate that, Andy. And I'd also like to acknowledge... Um, all those people who've supported my career and believed in me as a songwriter and put up with me and, you know, whatever I am uh, as a person, uh, you know. Um, but I'd especially thank um, Marlena, my wife, and my children, Grace, Josie, and Matthew, for all those times over the years where 
you know, I was caught up with things, mountain climbing, as I, I call it, um, trying to achieve the impossible with things. And those people were always there, and I loved them so much. Um, same with the guys, my brothers uh, in excess, uh, and my adopted brothers. Uh, uh, so, you know, Tim and John, my brothers, and Kirk and Gary, and uh, Miss Michael as well, um, and, and Chris, uh, uh, who helped us out so much over the years. Um, uh, and just so many people in the background of my life who... You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had an award like that or an honour if it wasn't for those people helping me be me. So, you know, uh, like many things in life that you see, the front end of is usually not that simple. Behind the front end of anything is a whole line of, of a sequence of events or people that have supported someone so they can get there. You've got to surround yourself with amazing people. Yeah, and, you, and if you help other people... It's karma, it's good, good luck, and something might come back at you. you know? Love it. I reckon that's a good way to, way to end this off, but um, I'll put links uh, in the show notes. Everyone can check out the, the two singles, the most recent one as well, and uh, May 15th, May is, 15th. Is, the, is the new album. That's it. So uh, fingers crossed for you. I'm sure it's going to do quite well, but um, as I said before, I'm amazed that uh, it's taken this long for a, for a debut solo album, but um, it's exciting that it's, uh, it's coming, so I'm looking forward to hearing it. Let's Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Excellent. AndrewFarris.com is the place to go. You can go and check out the latest single, Good Mama Bad, um, and also the first single, Come Midnight. The brand new album, uh, self-titled debut solo album, will be out on the 15th of May. You can go to AndrewFarris.com. So that's Andrew, F-A-R-R-I-S-S.com. All the pre-order links are there for a whole range of different retailers. So depending on your preference, there's a few different options. Um, and all the social media handles um, are there as well for things such as uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So make sure you follow him on the socials. Um, let him know what you thought of this episode as well. Um, it was just, as you heard in this chat, it was just a, a really fun and casual, um, just a really, really great chat. I got so much out of this. So hopefully you guys did too as well. But um, please, like any guest that's on this podcast, reach out to them and let you know, let them know what you thought. Now, um, one little thing to add in here is a little additional acknowledgement because um, once we finished recording, Andrew forgot to mention um, a, a few people that um, should have been mentioned when he was thanking all these legendary, uh, super important people in his life, you know, friends, family, um, you know, his partner, everybody that's been sort of integral in his life to get him to where he is now. And he said to me, can you please ensure that you also make a note of his sister, Alison, and as, as well as his mum and dad. So there you go. Thank you, Alison. Thank you, mum and dad from Andrew. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that's so cool that, as I said, I think earlier in, uh, in the intro, um, for a guy who's achieved so much and um, has just um, changed the lives of so many people through what he's created. Um, he, these amazing iconic songs to still be so self-aware and to be able to, um, acknowledge and continuously thank and be so humble. Um, and yeah, appreciative of all these people around him is just, it's, it's awesome to see. And, um, it's definitely, um, a, something to look up to and, and admire. So there you go. Some additional uh, thank yous there from Andrew. So super cool stuff. As I mentioned, andrewfarris.com. Now, uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of plugs for myself. Um, the only thing I would suggest going to is andydowling.net. Right there, you can find everything about um, my band Lord, 
um, as well as um, all the other podcasts that I'm involved with, um, my social media handles, and I'm going to start utilizing this portal page a little bit more. Uh, most of my stuff's been sitting over at andysocial.net, and I'm going to start migrating everything over to andydowling.net to make it nice and easy. So go and check that out. There's a mailing list there. Sign up to that because that's probably the best way to uh, stay up to date with all the rubbish and wafflings in my life because um, I'm trying to reduce it on these main podcast episodes every week. So I'm trying, guys. Just bear with me. I'll start to refine them and get them a little bit more concise as we go. But uh, that's it, folks. Uh, so next week, we have two episodes that are coming out, and that's the trend that's going to be happening. Um, as I said earlier in the episode, go back and listen to the uh, episode that came out a few days earlier. Um, that explains the new format of the podcast. But really quickly, um, earlier in the week, um, I think because I'm recording this a little bit in advance, um, I believe Tuesday mornings um, are going to be a uh, what I call a crazy talk episode, which is just me uh, waffling on about uh, what's going on in my life, what's been happening in the last week. I'm going to try and keep them really, really uh, timely. Um, so if there's things going on in the world or things that are going on in my life, I'm going to try and talk to them, at, talk about them as they happen. Oh, Andy, come on. And then later in the week, uh, every Thursday night, like it's always been in the past, I'll have the main episode that comes out with a new guest each and every week. So um, lots of stuff happening. I'll explain it all in that uh, previous pre-episode if you haven't listened to that already. And uh, there's heaps of great stuff coming up. Lots of episodes already recorded, lots of people lined up for for episodes and recordings. And I'm really looking forward to sharing it all with you. Please uh, reach out to me and uh, let me know what you think of it all and uh, any suggestions, blah, 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 you know, the usual stuff. So anyway, enough episode 200. It's in the bag. Let's keep moving forward. Thanks, guys. Ta-ta. Larry. Larry, please.